Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel, and Ian, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I feel like most of us are about three weeks into the quarantine, give or take. I'm slowly losing my mind, but I'm trying to hang in there. How are you doing? I'm all right. I got four exams in the next seven days, so a little bit, a uh, little bit stressed out. And oh, my! I think honestly, my body just like hurts at this point because you just I haven't been doing anything. So naturally, like it's like you get out of bed and that's a chore at this point. I keep forgetting that people in university are still grinding for assignments and grinding for studying for tests and whatnot. I know a lot of the world has basically come to a a pause right now, but for some people, it's uh, still in full swing. I know my girlfriend's a nurse right now at CAMH. Bless her. Someone on on one of their units, not not the one that she works on, but someone on a different unit got uh, COVID-19. Oof. And now, oh, it's it's it sucks, man. This is a, it's a crappy situation we're in right now, but everyone's trying to pull through. Yeah, so we'll figure we'll uh, talk about some hockey. And, I mean, it's a good study break for me, and I actually got to get out of bed because that's where I've been studying from. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have some fun. We've got some, some cool things. I think um, – we got a pretty neat podcast coming next week that I think Ian and I are both uh, excited about. There's a guest coming, so that's exciting. But what are we hitting today? So someone brought this up on Twitter. It's a really good idea, and I think we're just going to dive into it full steam today. So when we're talking about aggressive forechecks and we're talking about pressuring the puck, I know that if I, I, I've been playing a lot of NHL 20 lately, you can turn the, the settings up on your forecheck all the way so that it's super aggressive, or yes. you can turn them all the way back. So you're basically just sitting back. That's we're be a thing focusing, you can do. Yeah, it's awesome. So we're going to be focusing today on what it's like to aggressively pressure the puck. I mean, basically in all three zones, I think in the offensive zone, it's the most interesting from a tactical perspective, but we're going to be talking about aggressive forechecks today. Right. And it'll go into the neutral zone. And for anyone who likes soccer, um, we're going to be talking about the Gagan press made kind of pretty famous by Jurgen Klopp. And we'll break it down uh, because that is basically the where this has come from and and the teams that do it you can see the similarities uh cross sport into how they use the the gagan press in hockey to recover the puck but um i don't know you we kind of talked about some important points and i think the one that we really need to touch on is uh to aggressively forecheck or to have any type of success with this type of forecheck whether it's in the offensive zone or the neutral zone um it's a team buy-in thing like this is not a oh, like, yeah, we'll do this. It's everybody buys in, all four lines. It's a style of play. So it's not a skill thing where, like, you have to be one of the premier players to do this successfully. Like, 12-year-olds can and have done this. My brother's hockey team used to do this. It is literally a pure will and I will do this thing. There's almost no skill involved other than skating fast. It comes down to, I think, everyone being on the same page, right? You can't have one person who's relentlessly pressuring the puck, but then the other two forwards on the forecheck aren't 
covering their responsibilities because then all of a sudden it's an easy breakout pass and potentially an odd man rush the other way. I think that's the biggest thing with this is that it's a risky style, but if you do it properly, you're going to minimize that risk and you're going to maximize your gain from taking away all that space. So in order to do it properly, how do you not give up the odd man rushes the other way? Because to me, that's the biggest concern is that when you're aggressively keeping all five players in the offensive zone, you know, both defensemen on the blue line, three forwards high in the offensive zone pressing. If the other team successfully pulls off two or three quick passes, you could be in some trouble. So how do you prevent that from happening? So I think... The way that um, it was explained to me, and it was explained to me in the soccer context, but it, it the same thing applies to hockey. It's like hyenas on the puck. So it's a pack mentality. So the problem you have is most players don't buy into that level of forward check and back check because once you get beat, it involves a reload. And most players aren't that dedicated. And that's literally the answer to the question of how do you avoid odd man rushes? You have to have a level of buy-in where when that first pass likely gets made, that player knows that they have to re-attack in the neutral zone and they've got to sprint to their spot to be able to do that. And it requires a ton of stopping and starting. And a lot of hockey players really like those looping uh, turns. And so that's one of those things where it this really will expose the lazy players because if your team is doing it and you're the only player on the ice not doing it it's gonna get exposed because that's how you give up an odd man rush so I think the simplest answer is everyone has to be like you said on the same page and it requires a level of dedication to stopping and starting and sprinting at at full speed that I don't think uh, some hockey players really love doing. And when you brought up the fact that hyenas are on the forecheck, basically, they're just relentlessly going after the puck. I think of a a great quote from Pep Guardiola, who is the famous Barcelona manager during their uh, tiki-taki years. They won Champions League. They won a bunch of trophies. Uh, He had this quote. I'm not sure if I'm going to get it right, but he said, basically, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. When you have the ball, you want to make the field as big as possible. And when the other team has it, you want to make it as small as possible. You nailed it. And that applies to, a, yeah, exactly, to a four check. If I'm the team breaking the puck out of my own zone, I want to have options on all areas of the ice. I want to have multiple options, whether it's a pass to the left, pass to the right, a stretch pass. I want to make you, I want to force the opposition to defend the entire ice because that's going to give me more space. If I'm the team that's trying to take that space away, I want my first four checker coming right at the guy. I want the second four checker right on top of that first passing option. I want my third four checker right on top of that second passing option. It's basically like you said, all about those stops and starts, all about people being on the same page and aggressively taking away that space. Because if you have one person who's just slowly skating in on the four check, slowly skating back on the back check, the entire system's going to get exposed, and that's where the buy-in's extremely important. You see it on a team like Vegas, especially in that first year. Oh, when I man, think of that, that was top so awesome. Line, that Riley Smith, Marcia So, William Carlson line, I just think of those three just buzzing around the puck nonstop. Because those three, realistically, they're not the most talented players in the NHL, but if you looked at their on-ice results, that was a top 10 line in the NHL, and they just were incredible at taking away that space, getting the puck back, And then if you turn the puck over, 
usually when you get it back, you, you have a chance to quickly counterattack on a three-on-two rush or maybe a four-on-three. You're going to have some more space to exploit the opposition. I think, again, this might be a Pep Guardiola saying, this might be another soccer coach, but the best time to attack is right after you get the ball back, is right after a turnover. In hockey, the best time to score a goal often is right after the other teams turn the puck over because they're not set up in their in their defense. You can quickly exploit some space. You can exploit some two-on-ones. That's basically what you want to do is you want to force that quick turnover and then attack right afterwards. So you need, in order to have this kind of like hyenas on the puck mentality, you have to rely on your speed. So clearly like you have to be fast. You got to be organized. And the whole goal of this um, four check is you're looking to panic the man on the puck and gain possession. And so one of the things that Jurgen Klopp has has always said is the best moment to try and get the ball, or in this case, the puck, is right after that player has taken possession. Because immediately they are less likely to know where other players are on their team. They're less likely to have full control of the puck or the ball. And so if you have this hyenas on the pack mentality where everyone's going and and you're attacking and then you're reattacking in the neutral zone, allowing your defenseman to step up, then you have a better chance of getting this puck back. However, one of the key points that uh, he brought up, and it's actually, it's a German word, um, and I think I see it sometimes floating around on Twitter, but if you have one player, like Ian said, where um, they're not as actively engaged and maybe they're sitting back a little bit because they don't want to do that stop and start and they think that, oh, I'll be able to catch them. There's a word in German for that. It's Verschlimmbesserung uh, and it basically means you're doing something because you think you'll make it better, you'll make the situation better, but actually you're making it way worse. So that's kind of the Can you the say whole that word again? Verschlimmbesserung. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so that's... It's one of those things where it fits perfectly. If four guys are doing it and one guy isn't because he thinks he's going to catch someone in the neutral zone as opposed to going in deep and applying that pressure, he's actually making it worse because now you've opened up that opportunity for a stretch pass or uh, someone to catch you with your feet standing still. That point that you made about Jurgen Klopp, about the idea of when's the best time to pressure the other team, it's like right when they regain possession. I know Barcelona had a basically a rule of thumb back in their heyday in the 2008 through 2012-ish, kind of when Tiki Taka was at its all-time high, when Spain was winning multiple uh, championships, whether it was Euro Cups or the World Cup in 2010. Uh, I know the philosophy was that within the first either six or seven seconds after they regain possession... We're just going to pressure them like crazy. And then if they're able to open up space, fine, we'll back off and then we'll collapse back into our normal defense. I feel like in hockey, you can have a similar mentality of, okay, right when they regain possession, you know, defenseman grabs a puck behind their own net uh, after uh, a dump in. We're going to pressure that guy like crazy. They're going to make a pass in the neutral zone. We're still going to pressure them like crazy in the neutral zone. Okay, crap. Now they're set up in the offensive zone. We'll go back into our normal defense where we're kind of collapsing in front of the net. We're taking away those backdoor passes. It's, it's the idea of when's the best time to really pressure someone to try your best to get the puck back. And it's usually when they're not ready for you. You know, it's, it's when they don't have a bunch of time and space, when they're not skating up the ice, you know, along the boards in the offensive zone, when, they, when they're making their moves. It's when they've just recovered that puck 
along the boards. They haven't turned their shoulder yet. They don't know where anyone is. That's the best time to really pressure somebody. Right. And I think bringing up Vegas is, I mean, they, they made it to the cup final. The, and the thing, the problem you run into with this press is you have to know when to stop hunting the puck and to go into your defensive shape. Um, because if you get beat to the point where they're going to attack, you have to know that you can't continue to pressure like that or you will get beat. And I think Vegas did a really, really good job of that. And that made them successful because they came wave after wave, line after line with just like this murderous forecheck. They flush you to a side and then they forced with like all three of their forwards, their D came really high to shrink the rank and... As you came back towards them, they reattacked you and they continued to hound. But when they got to a point where they realized they weren't going to get the puck and the team was coming with speed, then they went into their defensive shape and they were able to mitigate a ton of the odd man rushes and make them way less dangerous. And so I think finding that happy medium between continuous pressure and hyena mentality and then knowing when you have to go into your defensive structure so that you can defend against giving up a high danger scoring chance from the slot I think Vegas did a really good job of that and because of that they caused turnovers they caused rushed plays bobbled plays I think that was the year I had access to a bunch of data and I want to say that Vegas led the league in icings caused by just like firing the puck out of their own end and I know that concept of knowing when it's right to put your foot on the gas, but knowing when it's right to back up and go back into your defensive shape. You see that with the best penalty killing teams in the league. They right. know when it's right to jump on a loose puck. Oh, someone's on their backhand. Someone's bobbled a loose puck. Someone has just gone into a corner by themselves and they don't have any help nearby. Okay, now we're going to pressure. But crap, they've made the pass to an open man. They have a ton of open space. We're going to back off now. Now is not the right time to pressure. And right. I think understanding when it's the right time to swarm the puck like Vegas and just go relentlessly at it like a hyena, and when it's the right time to actually back off and take away those passes, I think that's the balance that a lot of teams struggle to find. So who's a team that comes to mind that maybe is a bit over-aggressive and they get burned by it sometimes? Um, That's actually an interesting question. I can't say that I know. I know Vegas got burned a few times as they were trying to figure out the kinks, and then later in the season as teams started to sort of figure it out. Like last year, San Jose burned them more than a few times, and I remember watching um, some video clips of that. And I want to say Montreal was actually doing it with some effectiveness last season, and I think Arpon Basu wrote an article about it. And But then they started to get beat once they weren't as dedicated to the whole structure of it and reattacking. So they had a really good step one, which was the pressure up ice and the flush out. But then they got away from reattacking in the neutral zone, and that really bit them because then they were getting scored on a ton off the rush. Could you explain that in a bit more detail? So they, what were they doing really well? They were winning the puck back really well, but they weren't counterattacking? No. So what would happen was um, they would go, if a team was trying to break out, they would be really good at pressuring right in the immediate sense of it. Like as soon as the other team recovered the puck, they were still in their own end. Um, but then they would make one pass, let's say, and it would get by one or two of the Habs. So now you've got... Um, 
you still got your third player who's attacking. And generally when they were having success and when Vegas has success, those two players that got beat by that pass would come back, re-attack through the middle and like have that hyena mentality of we've got to stop and start, get back to where the puck is and start to clog up that zone. And when Montreal stopped doing that, when those two forwards stopped coming back hard through the middle and taking away the passing options, um, other teams were able to counter really effectively because once that happens, so if you don't have that back pressure from those two forwards coming back, your D, it's way harder to stand up at the blue line because you don't have the support. Whereas if you see those two players coming back, it's very easy for you to just stand up at the blue line because if you even delay for a half second, that's usually enough time for that player that's coming back hard to get in position to support the puck or take the puck if it's knocked loose. Whereas when Montreal wasn't doing that, then the D couldn't step up. It led to way more rush chances against. And I know nerds like us care a lot about those zone entries, because if you can prevent the other team from getting in, into your offensive zone, so, you know, clean entry over the blue line, if you can force them to dump it in, it's hard for them to create offense because you have to get the puck back and then you might not be in the right position. But if, if you allow that entry right away, you're in some trouble because a lot of offense in the NHL comes within five to 10 seconds of a clean entry. That's when most of the goals in the NHL are scored. But like you said, if you don't have that back support from forwards who are right behind that, that player, think of a, a Pavel Datsuk or a Henrik Zetterberg in their prime, just right on that player's ass on the back check, you know, not giving them any space. If you have that support, it's much easier to come up and step up, either force a turnover or force a dump in. But if you don't have that support, you're probably going to have to back off a little bit, give them the clean entry and try to take away the passing lanes. So this is where, even though at the individual level, we can have stats where we're trying to evaluate defensemen based on their ability to control their gaps and to force dump ins or take away space at the blue line. A lot of it is dependent on whether or not that back support is there. And some teams do a much better job of it than others. So what's interesting is, and this is just because we both watch this team, so it, it comes to mind, you do report cards for the Leaf games. And a lot of the time, and you and I have talked about this a lot, you remark about how the Leafs give up the blue line too easily. And you're absolutely correct. What I think it's overlooked by a lot of people, and I know you notice this, but not everyone does, is have you seen the lack of um, gumption that some of the Leafs forwards backcheck with? It's like they're not even in the screen half the time. So it definitely depends on the night. You have some exactly. nights where they look like a legitimate contender and they have other nights where it looks like they just don't care. Right. And it's, and it's really one of those things where you talk about how Tyson Berry and Morgan Riley and and these defensemen, they don't stand up at the blue line. And you're absolutely right. They need to stand up at the blue line. But in order for them to do that, there needs to be just a modicum of back pressure. And most of the time, that's one of the first things I look for. There's not a lot of back pressure and you can't step up as a defenseman without back pressure because if you get beat, then we're talking a potential 2-on-0, definitely at least a 2-on-1, if not a 3-on-1. It gets very dangerous and then the D ends up wearing the goat horns when realistically you want your defenseman stepping up at the blue line, but you can't if you've got a guy that is still at the blue line as your uh, play is coming into your zone like it just doesn't work like that so in order to I was talking to someone in hockey about what's the most underrated attribute of forwards these days you know what are we not properly valuing and, and what, what are players that 
and yeah, puck pursuit is something is the, the main thing that this person brought up. And I thought, can you go into a bit more detail and explain what you mean? And, and the way that you described it is by saying, well, if you have a forward who's constantly taking away space and constantly forcing the other team to either make a bad pass they don't want to make, or like you say, back pressure. If you're just back checking like a maniac every single time, then the other team isn't going to create much offense off the rush. And off the rush is where most teams are generating a lot of their goals. So, so here's an idea. It's that def- I have a question for you, because this just came to mind. And I feel like this is something you would love. All right. I'm interested. This tracking data that we're getting. If you watch the All-Star game, you saw that they had uh, these triangles where you could see the proximity to which every player was to their teammates. I wonder if this tracking data will provide proximity to opponent. So, for example, I would venture to guess that Pavel Datsuk on the back checks, his Average proximity to player was probably five or six feet, indicating that he's always close to his back check and he's applying pressure. Whereas maybe some other players, the average is maybe closer to 20 or 30 feet. And that would maybe indicate that they aren't um, back checking with the level of pursuit that you would like. I wonder if this tracking data can tell us how close you are and what your proximity is, because that may quite literally quantify how good you are on the back check. And that's the biggest thing. I always love ways of quantifying things. You can watch a lot of tape and learn a lot about players, but is is the average person going to be able to watch all 31 teams play most of their games? No, you're not going to be able to. So how can I quickly just sort a stat and see which players in the NHL are best at taking away space? Let's say in a, in a three-on-two situation, which players are the best at being that third man back and turning a three-on-two into a three-on-three? There's got to be a way you can measure that somehow. Right, I'd love proximity to, know which to players player. in the league are best at it. Yeah, yeah, sure. If you did it that way, and I just feel like that would be a great way of just saying, okay, this player is really good at just getting their ass back on defense. And even though we say, oh yeah, it's a, it's a mentality thing, it's a hustle thing, it's a heart thing. I feel like if we were able to put a number to it and quantify it, we'd be able to say this guy is preventing this many goals because he's preventing these opportunities. Whereas this player is floating back on defense and it results in a lot of odd man rushes for the opposition. I'm sure we'd see a lot of high end uh, goal scorers show up on that list. You know, the Patrick Canes and Alex Ovechkins of the world. Yeah. Uh, but what, you know, what would be super the, interesting. The obvious caveat there is that, Oh, go for it. Sorry. Yeah. Like what would be super interesting from that is Let's say you have some of the league's fastest skaters, Matt Barzell, for example. He's one of the league's fastest skaters, and now all of a sudden you're seeing a 20 to 30 foot discrepancy in puck pursuit um, proximity, let's say. You can go to him and be like, hey, listen, like, I know you're capable of skating faster, so let's, let's get a move on here, and we need to be better. And on the flip side you could have a bunch of people arguing on Twitter saying this guy doesn't compete, he doesn't back check hard, this, that, the other garbage, you know what people say. And then you could just pull up his puck pursuit proximity stat and be like, well, actually, he's within six or seven feet on average of his back check. That would indicate that he actually is good at back checking. Yeah, it's always nice when you have some kind of evidence to back things up. When people say, oh, this guy can't move the puck, but then I can pull up <laughs> zone exit stats that prove he is good at yes. it. And well, you know, the evidence says this. So Yeah, the numbers that use math, you say this. And your eyes say another thing, and we're going to go with the math. Fun fact, I was getting into an argument someone a few years ago about Nikita Zaitsev on, uh, it was on Leafs Reddit. 
and they were saying, "Hey, can, do, do you have any numbers on his, uh, you know, breakout ability?" Just because, uh, you know, I, I feel like he's done a good job moving the puck out. And I said, "Yes, I do have some numbers on that. He is in the bottom like five percent in the NHL in that." area <laughs> he's really bad at making breakout passes and then the first one i said oh well you know i'm not sure if you can trust these numbers and i just go well crap you were willing to trust them when you thought that they proved your point but now they do yeah. the opposite of that people don't people don't like that exactly and i think with this the aggressive forecheck and it kind of bleeds into the neutral zone forecheck there's variations of this so you can have one person close on the puck carrier which to force an icing or a dump out which is a non-possession controlled exit um or you can close on passing options and i'll explain this when we get into the gagan press because i think it's a very it will be easily understood when the gagan press is explained but if you send multiple people to the puck carrier the more people coming the more panic you're going to inspire in that player because it's a lot easier to get the puck through one body than it is to get through two or three but vice versa if you close on passing options which is a huge pep guardiola thing and a very big eupinkus thing he was uh the manager of the bayern munich team that won like six trophies in a year in 2013 and so his premise is you send one player to the puck carrier and everybody else is responsible for taking away a passing lane. So now you've got one guy hounding the puck carrier and you're trusting that he's going to reload and reattack, and you're trusting your other guys to be between that player and the puck so that if that player tries to make a pass to any one of the other players, it should result in an interception or at least a battle. And I think that's a kind of interesting concept in hockey because I don't think that that is maybe looked at enough. We talk about gap control, but it's very difficult to measure in terms of how good your gap actually is because we don't have that proximity stat. Whereas if you're closing on passing options and now we've got a bunch of pass interceptions, that's a measurable thing. So which style do you prefer? Do you prefer the style where you're more aggressively going after the puck carrier or where you're taking away the passing lanes? Um, I prefer uh, the second option. Um, I actually, I like the hybrid of that, which is what Jurgen Klopp uses at Liverpool, where you press full send to get it into... So he identified, I think it was in a Champions League game, that if the ball came out through the central defenders, which is the defenders in the middle of the field, that they were way more accurate with their passes and they were way more apt to uh, have a scoring chance. But if it came out up the sides of the pitch, then they were way less accurate with their passing. So what he would do is he would go option one and full send on the ball carrier to force them, the central defenders, to make the play to the outside. And then as soon as the ball went to the winger or the fullback on the outside, he would peel back and all the passing options would be gone. So then he would force that player that he didn't necessarily care if he had the ball or not to make a, a passing choice. And more often than not, it was successful. And very clearly, because Liverpool didn't lose a game for over a year. It's a really interesting strategy. So basically the idea is that the middle of the field is where the highest percentage of completion rate is of passes. So you force them into an area where it's not a high completion area and that's how you're going to force your turnovers. Right. So the whole, I guess you should probably explain the Gagan press, shouldn't I? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, we brought it up so often here. So for people who don't follow soccer, Jurgen Klopp had a ridiculous amount of success back in Germany at Borussia Dortmund. And then he came over to Liverpool and people were thinking, oh, well, I don't know if this is going to work in the Premier League. And he made it to what? Back-to-back Champions League finals? Um, I believe, yes. And he's Liverpool is going to win the title. I think they're one point shy of actually clinching it. And there's still like a bunch of games left to be played. Um, they went over a year without losing a single game. Like they were one of the best teams. I used to, I'm a Man City fan, but being the German that I am, I find it impossible not to cheer for Jurgen Klopp. I just think he's, he's so likable. And, um, so to, I watched Liverpool quite a bit actually. And, uh, this is, this is typical Klopp. He's basically taken his system from Dortmund and just applied it at Liverpool, with better players. See, I'm a Man United fan, so I've just given up on life completely. Oh, but God, you Liverpool soul. is one of my favorite teams to watch. I just, I love their style. I love how they just aggressively go after the ball every time they lose it. It's a, it's a fun style to watch because it leads to more scoring chances, I mean, at both ends. But the idea is that the risk that you're taking by aggressively going after the ball, the turnovers that you create and the scoring chances that come off of that they're going to be more beneficial to you than whatever you're giving up because of that aggressive play. And that's his philosophy. And it clearly has been working for Liverpool. So I'll let you explain some of the ins and outs of it. Okay, so essentially the the Gagan press actually, I think, started like in the 80s, I want to say in English football. Um, and then Jurgen Klopp kind of came along at Dortmund and, and took it to a different level. And there are other coaches, managers who use it. Guardiola uses it. Maurizio Pochettino used it. Hugh uh, Pinkus used it. So it's it's one of those things where you can make your own adjustments. But here are the pillars, and you will see how this is similar to what Vegas is doing. And the I guess we're calling the hyena forecheck at this point. Um, so you want to keep... The- I mean, they call it the swarm, right? Might as well call it what yeah. most people are calling it. Vegas calls it the swarm when they're just aggressively going after the puck. There you go. Swarm. Okay, so in soccer, you want to keep the ball in the central zones because that prevents ball movement from one side of the pitch to the other. So think about how big a soccer field is. And we talk about this in hockey where you want to go side to side. You want to switch sides because it forces the D to completely switch. And if you can widen the rink, then you'll likely have more scoring chances. And it's the Guardiola quote that Ian brought up earlier, where if you don't have the ball, you want to shrink the field. So if the ball's in the middle of the field, you can't go side to side because it's in the middle. So you want to force it to the middle unless you're making that adjustment to get it into a certain player's um, possession. And so what happens is it happens in three stages. In soccer, there are usually they play like a a three 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 four um, or three four three. It's depending on formation. But the central forwards are at the top, and they're the first four checkers, so they'd be F1, F2 in hockey. And their jobs are to close the passing lanes to wherever you're trying to close them. So if you want the ball to go out wide, they'll close the passing lanes to the midfielders. If you want the ball to stay in in the middle because you don't think it particularly matters, then they will close the passing lanes to prevent the ball from going out wide. Then you have your second and this line. this is sometimes based on personnel, right? Like right. I'm thinking back to when the Leafs were facing the Bruins in the playoffs and they were trying to force the puck to Toronto's bad puck movers on the right side of the ice. The idea is that yes. you're trying to force the play 
in a direction that that team doesn't want it to go. It's going to go to their players who aren't as good at passing. Right. So for the most part, you don't want the ball out wide because that gives the opportunity to stretch the field. So the central forwards likely will close the passing lanes to the players out wide. Then you have your second line, which are your midfielders, and they position themselves to have access to two players, which means that they can run and pressure either. And I think the translation to English is option-oriented. So what that means is that each player in in the midfield can apply pressure to one of two players depending on where they are. So they position themselves so that if either one of those players can get the ball, they can be a pressure. And the idea behind that is you always want to have two players providing some type of pressure. So you have player one providing the actual body pressure and then player two providing that passing support pressure. Then you have... This is how the best players in the NBA... Oh, sorry. Keep going, then I'll, I'll make my basketball point. So. Yeah, so then you have the defenders, which is sort of like your last line. And they're the same as the midfielders, except if the midfielders do a good job of their option-oriented um, pressure, then it allows the defenders to push up higher, which further clogs the field. And that means that not only can you not put the ball side to side, you now don't have long passes. And so now you've really shrunk the field because if, unlike in hockey, if defenders step up and players, opposing players are behind them, they're offside. So it really makes it easier um, to defend if everyone, like we talked about, has that pack mentality. And and they're really um, dedicated to this option-oriented um, pressure. And so from that, you then force either them to just kick the ball down the field, you force a lot of tackles, um, and you also allow for a counterattack. So ideally, that first player with the pressure gets the puck or the ball, and they can move it to the player that's in the support, and now you're attacking the other way. It happens a lot quicker in hockey than it does in soccer, but it's the same sort of concept and you can actually it's way easier to see and understand in soccer because you could see it just happening whereas in hockey everyone just kind of looks like they're skating around the point that i wanted to bring up is that when you're referring to those players in the middle of the field who are trying to basically cover two players at once so that if one of those guys gets the ball i'm gonna go after that guy if the other guy gets the ball i'm gonna go after that guy that's how the best transitional defenders in the NBA are able to prevent fast breaks. I think of someone like Danny Green. He sprints back on defense and he tries to get himself right between two players so that if the ball goes one way, he's ready for it. If the ball goes the other way, he's ready for it. And I'm thinking in hockey, this would apply probably to the neutral zone. You know, you have the first forward is, is applying pressure to the puck carrier, you know, the, the defenseman who's trying to move the puck out. But what's the high forward doing? You know, what's F3 doing? What's the, the low defenseman doing? If we're thinking of a 1-3-1 neutral zone trap, you know, what are those players doing? Well, you're not just covering one player because then you're only taking one pass away. You want to be able to take two passes away. I'm going to see if I can take away the pass to this player on my left, but also this player on my right. If you make either of those passes, I can jump the passing lane and take that play away. I feel like that's what the best defenders in soccer are able to do in the middle of the pitch. The best defenders in basketball are able to do that when they're defending the break. It's the same concept. You want to not just take one player away, but you want to take two players away if you can. Exactly. And you want to be able to provide that support because it's so important. And you can see, I think one of my favorite, I forget what game it was, but there was one player who... 
I want to say it was like Oxlade Chamberlain or something like that. And he was, he's a midfielder for Liverpool and he made a critical error where he didn't pressure when he should have. And it resulted in a goal against, and he was substituted off literally six minutes later. So it was enough time for the player that was replacing him to get warmed up. And then he came in because they panned to Klopp as soon as it happened. And the look on his face, it like if looks could kill, that was one of those looks because it was it was a critical error that led to a goal against. And if it happened with 11 players on the field, think about how magnified it is when there are only five aside in hockey. So if one player screws up, then it leads to this rush, which leads to the goal. Everyone's apt to either blame the goalie or the defenseman, but what a lot of people don't realize is that that mistake was likely made way earlier. And this is where the... Uh, the coaching decisions that you'll see in a sport versus the Twitter opinions can kind of come to a clash because an extremely talented player can provide a lot of value. But if they screw up something tactically that is very coachable and that it's part of them not buying into the system and a coach punishes a player for that, whether it's by playing them on the fourth line or taking away their power play time, you know, healthy scratching them for a game. It tends to really bother Twitter, but I think the idea from a lot of coaching staffs is that I know that this talented player is going to be good at hockey. He's he's obviously very good at hockey, but I need to get this player to buy into the system because if this player doesn't buy in, then maybe another player isn't going to buy in, right. and then that other player isn't going to buy in, and then it's just this trickle-down effect. You need to set an example from the top down that this is the system we're going to be running. These are your responsibilities on the forecheck, on the back check, and you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you need to make sure that everyone's on the same page there. I'm sure that's why a lot of coaches would tell you that they're really hard on some of their most skilled players because you want those guys to be setting the example that, you know what, it's not just about your ability to create goals. You also need to buy into these defensive elements that we're trying to get every single person to buy into. I get that you're more talented than that other player who's on the third line who he's only really providing value with his defense, but you also need to provide those defensive elements because you can. And I know you can. And this is where you get really frustrated with, you know, the Kevin Fialas of the world. Or I know people would make the argument about William Nylander a year ago, but I'd make the argument that he's uh, shut up a lot of those uh, those doubters with his play this year. It's it's too bad that the season ended because, man, he was having a career year. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not even just seen in hockey like. Jurgen Klopp, you want to talk about having a difference in getting those players to buy in. Mo Salah was he was a good soccer player, but he went he, like he was nominated for the Ballon d'Or, and that puts you in the conversation with the likes of Messi and Ronaldo. And so that's one of those things where if you get that buy in, and the same thing with Jordan Henderson, who is the arguably the premier midfielder at Liverpool now, he was almost an afterthought at the English national team level, and now. You talk to anybody in in England and they can't even imagine if Garrett Southgate were to leave Jordan Henderson off. And it's one of those things where if you buy into a system that really works, then it can make you better as a player. It happened with Mo Salah. It happened with Jordan Henderson. Virgil van Dijk is a defender who almost won the Ballon d'Or because he this it made him that good. You improve within the system and it makes you better because it challenges you. And I think that Nylander, like you brought up, is a perfect example of that. He clearly bought into the Keefe system and was having a terrific year. And Sean Couturier buying into being 
a premier defensive forward, you could argue that he should win the Selkie. So it's one of those things where if you buy in, not only does it benefit your team, but it also makes you better. So it's a really good point, but we're running a bit late here, so I'm thinking we should probably wrap up our talk on the forecheck and move along to the Kovalev shift. So do you have any final thoughts on uh, aggressive forechecks uh, when we make that comparison from soccer to hockey? No, I, I think that uh, more teams should do it. And I think you need to find players that will do that. And I think Vegas was the perfect um, kind of trial for that because they were all kind of deemed misfits and they all had something to prove. So they had no reason not to buy in. And they came within one game of the Stanley Cup for it. I mean, it helped that Marc-Andre Fleury put up, what, a 947 in the first three rounds of the playoffs? But the fact that they bought in and were as good as they were when everyone was saying that they were going to be Ottawa-level bad... Yeah, most models coming into the season had them projected to be, if not the worst team in the NHL, a bottom three team in the NHL. And it wasn't just puck luck that helped them succeed. They had some very strong system elements that helped them outshoot and outchance teams at 5-on-5. Five five. So if you're looking for an example of what a team buy-in can do from a forechecking standpoint, from an aggressive puck-pressuring standpoint, that year one of Vegas is probably the best example you're going to find in hockey. Yeah, agreed. All right, so we'll get to uh, our Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Socks, our favorite sock company. Effectiveness of the power play drop pass. I don't think you and I have had this conversation, like offline no, or online. No, but I see a lot of people. I see a lot of people yelling about it on Twitter. I hear people yelling about it in bars or in the living room of wherever I watch a hockey game. Oh, the so- bars are dangerous, man. The bars are dangerous. Bars are the best place to get takes that, that are just wild, and I, I love it. But here's the thing about the drop pass. It drives a lot of people crazy. Why do so many teams do it? Um, I think because it cre- if it's done properly, it creates a ton of space. The problem is, is everyone gets a little bit lazy on the power play, and it doesn't get done properly a lot of times, and that's when everyone rightfully, including the coaching staff, gets frustrated. All right, so in a perfect world, how does it work properly? What is the perfect execution of the power play drop pass to to gain the zone? Okay, so uh, I'll give this away just because we're going to go to a different uh, breakout next year. But So I used some of the things that I had studied while I was in New Jersey and applied them at York, and what we found was that when the defenseman skated the puck up um, and attacked the middle of the ice, they would draw the penalty killers to him, and we would put two or three players back. And what we would do is we would have the defenseman um, put the puck back along either dot line to the attacking players who were coming with speed. So now you had pushed the entire penalty kill back, and you had two players coming with speed. We would wait, that player who now had the puck would wait for a player to reattack, and then they would fire the pass cross ice to the second player that was attacking at their level. And so what you had happen was you had the defenseman skate up and push everybody back, then you had the drop pass made, two players coming with speed, and the speed part is the important part. You wait for the reattack, and then you zip it across, you stretch the ice... Um, width-wise, and we found that a lot of time that player had the ability to just skate right in for a clean zone entry, and, and we had a full setup or a scoring chance. 
So the idea is that you have the defenseman in the middle of the ice to draw in the penalty killers, and then he drops it. You like it when there are two players back for the drop pass? Two or three, yeah. Okay. Because I, I know there are some teams where it's just the one guy, where it's just your best little zone entry wizard, whether it's a Johnny Gaudreau, Patrick Kane, you know, insert skilled player. Right. And and to be honest, I think that it doesn't matter how much talent you have. If you don't do it with speed, it doesn't matter. And I think that that is where we see a lot of frustration because a lot of the time, and you and I remarked on this, which was a lot of the time when the Leafs are brutal on their power play zone entries, it's because they don't come with speed. So in New Jersey, the year that the Devils made the playoffs, um, and it's clearly no secret, uh, Taylor Hall was the zone entry guy on the power play, and he came with a blazing head of steam every single time. And when he didn't, he didn't have success. So he quickly picked up on that, because he's good, and realized when he came with speed, he had a great deal of success backing everybody off and, and gaining the zone. And so it doesn't matter how good you are, you have to come with speed, or it doesn't matter. And I think the defenseman, it's a, it's a key point too, because if the defenseman's just skating behind their net after an icing, slowly skating up to the neutral zone, you know, and then as he hits center ice, he just predictably drops it back. Then the other team's waiting for it. They're not even going to bother pressuring the defenseman because that's not a threat. So now you just wasted time getting the puck to a player that you could have given it to anyways. I think that's where it bothers people, where if you're going to slowly skate the puck up and predictably drop it... Then don't do it. You might as well not do that yeah. at all. Don't do it at all, because it's just a waste of time. But if you're going to go up with speed, back people off, and then with purpose, drop it to a wide-open player who now has plenty of space, yeah, that's a good tactic. That works well. But when you do it slowly, you're not fooling anyone. So what, what was interesting is... so. Teams pre-scout and our defenseman who leads our power play. Um, he's had a career year this year, but they were expecting him to drop the puck. But he came with so much speed that when they cheated and started attacking our two players behind him, he skated right through them, right through the two defensemen for a breakaway and scored. And that's the thing because <laughs> they're standing still at the blue line. You're loading up your blue line. You're loading up your neutral zone trap. But if you're not ready for that guy who's coming full speed through the neutral zone, then he's going to go right you through you. can burn them. And I have and it I, on Kim video. Kim done it a few times on Colorado, and it's just, it's so fun to watch because it looks like a bunch of pylons standing around because it's one guy who comes flying up with speed, and the other team goes, oh crap, we probably should have defended that guy. I think the thing with the drop pass is that you need to have that threat. If you have a player who never does the end-to-end -end rush thing, that I feel like the drop pass is just super predictable exactly. and you know it's coming. I feel like you need to you need to throw that in there once or twice where you're given that threat of, no, I'm going to take it this time and I'm going to get a really good chance off the rush. Exactly, and if you don't have that, like if your defenseman leisurely skates up and you know that they don't have any threatening speed of any kind or they're not going with any gumption, which was a habit of some players, um, then it doesn't matter. Then you can cheat on the drop pass and everyone asks why don't you just cheat on the drop pass well because then shit like Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes happen or Eric Carlson and you're made to look really stupid like how think about how but that's the idea dumb yeah. you look if you give up a drop pass and a zone entry versus if you let the defenseman skate right through you for a breakaway and score think about how dumb that looks 
It does look really bad, but at the same time, I understand when teams just keep dropping it every single time, I would cheat on the drop pass until they force me to respect the actual puck carrier. Right, and that become it's incumbent on the D to to make that happen, and the best defensemen in the league are the defensemen that do that, and this goes to my point of let's try a five-forward power play because maybe the forwards will skate forward with a little bit more... Uh, or a little less reserve and a little bit more offensive-minded, and that potentially leads to immediate zone entries or certainly easier zone entries for their teammates. That's another conversation for another day. I love the idea of just, you know, revamping things. You know, five forwards on the power play, three (laughs) forwards on the penalty kill. Let's try some new stuff. But we were talking about stops and starts earlier, about players who are a bit lazy when it comes to floating around. Uh, let's end this Kovalev shift. He seems like someone who probably wouldn't have bought into that uh, that gag and press style back uh, in the day. <laughs> n- no, he would would not have bought into that. That I can very much assure you. So that was our Kovalev shift. That was a five minute shift. That was a that was a longer one, but brought to you by Major League Socks. You can use promo code StaffGraph. That's one word, StaffGraph, to get fifteen percent off your first purchase. Yep. And now we're going to go to top three, because we're still in quarantine. I think we're going to be in quarantine for a while. Uh, Looking at some studies, I'm learning about the exponential rate of this thing, and it's just, we're not going to return to normalcy for a while. We might slowly be able to get back to a few things, but large public gatherings, I mean, that's off the table for a while. Yeah, and I know a lot of Toronto people listen to this podcast. If you were one of those idiots that was walking on the beaches boardwalk today, genuinely, fuck off. Like, we're not going to have summer. We are literally, if you just go inside for like a month right now, we'll all be able to have a relatively normal summer and go outside and enjoy things. But if you continue to just walk on the boardwalk, then we're not going to have a summer because we're going to be cooped up inside. So please just go inside because I guarantee you that a thousand of you don't need to be on the beach's boardwalk all lingering about together. That is not an essential service lingering about for for what it's worth i was driving through downtown toronto during rush hour i was picking up uh my girlfriend terry ann at cam h and it was a ghost town it's so good eerie, it should be just kind of and that's again that's a good thing it means that we're taking this whole quarantine thing seriously it's just man it still kind of weirds me out i'm, I'm still not kind of prepared for every time I, I leave the house to do something important, whether it's, you know, pick someone up or that one trip to the grocery store per week. It still creeps me out just how deserted, you know, a, a major yeah. city is right now. And again, it's a good thing, but man, it's it's kind of unsettling. Yeah. And like, like I said, it's OK to go get some exercise, go for a hike. You don't need to be playing soccer on the beach right now. That is not part of this whole social distancing thing. So please stop doing that so that we can enjoy our summer and go inside. And when you need to go to the grocery store, please do that. If you need to go to the doctor, please do that. If you need to go to work because you're part of an essential service, please do that. Please do not just go and start hanging out with your friends. All right. So what we're going to do is uh, every week we're doing top three of a certain category that to help us survive through quarantine. So what are the top three things that we're going to be talking about today? Today is uh, board games and NHL teams that we like watching, not named the Leafs. Okay. So is this like on a rewatch, like teams from, 
this season or teams from like years past? I'm curious what the criteria teams, is there. So like basically right now, what are your favorite teams or maybe even like growing up, what were the, your three favorite NHL teams to watch that weren't the Leafs? That's actually a really good question. All right. What are we doing first? Board games or I, NHL I teams? say board games. This is what you should be doing instead of playing soccer outside with a bunch of your friends. All right. I'm addicted to Settlers of Catan. I don't know. Oh, same. Okay, we're playing virtual. Okay, I love that game. If you haven't right. played it before, it's yep. a it's a fun strategy game. It's kind of like Risk. I think a, a more simple version of Risk. And uh, a lot of people getting into fights about you know wheat and ore and brick and wood and just it, it ends friendships. But I love it. <laughs> so we in university, I was living in uh, in Res, and there was a group of five of us every day we would get a certain knock at the door and you knew, okay, like homework time, we're taking a break, we're playing Catan. We had a rule that we played two games per day every single day for two years. And so it it got potentially a little bit out of hand because there were times like during exams where we would play six or seven games. So I'm with you. Catan is it's a go-to. Uh, another game I really like is Game of Life. It's like an old one, but it's a classic. I love that game. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Uh, do I have a third off the top of my head? Maybe Monopoly. Again, old. It's it's kind of generic. Which Monopoly? Um, the OG. You know, Boardwalk. Okay. Yeah. It's my favorite. Those are those are just they're so default, but I like playing them with you know whether it's family or like whoever you're with. It's it's a good four plus player game. Yeah. Um, I like all three of those. I my family we actually connect uh collect Monopoly. So I think we have probably close to 40 different types of Monopoly. I have a Mississauga Monopoly with Hazel McCallion on the front cover. Oh my god. Awesome. So I would say Catan is my favorite board game. Bar none. No, no competition. Um, I don't know if this counts, but puzzles. Um, I have done... So Disney has this limited edition collection of a thousand piece puzzles. And I have done eight of them now. And I just, I love puzzles. They help organize your brain. They're really good for anxiety and depression. So uh, if y'all are wondering how I'm surviving right now, that is how. At camp, um, we had a bunch of campers who love doing puzzles. And sometimes we have like the smaller 300 or 500 pieces. But I've done a few of those thousand piece puzzles. I don't know how you do them. I, I'm just looking at it like I'm completely lost trying to figure out what goes where. I can't do it. So these are the ones I've done. I've done... 101 Dalmatians, Aladdin, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Lady and the Tramp, Cinderella, Jungle Book, and um, Peter Pan. No Mulan? Come so on. I gotta you gotta do... step up your game here. What? It said no Mulan? There's no Mulan puzzle yet. Ouch. It's coming out with the movie. That was my favorite one. Um, up, so there, so. Yeah, that's... Um, but I'm working on another one now, and uh, so that's, I don't know if that counts, but whatever. And then I like um, the Grinch Monopoly <laughs> is my favorite Monopoly game. I did that one or the Disney what's, Villains one. They're so, like. What's the boardwalk on that just, map? Um, The Grinch Cave. <laughs> what's the cheapest property? Um, It's more like characters, so the Biddies and the Whoville Dump are the 
like red properties. That's awesome. I actually probably could name all the properties now that I think about it, which is really not great. I played NHL Monopoly um, back in the day. I want to say that the Leafs were Boardwalk and the Habs were Park Place. I can't remember who the lower end ones were. I think, yeah, I think you're right. But also, like, that's one of those ones that's a collector. I don't like the new credit card monopolies. I think those are really weird, and I personally find them very frustrating. I just like the old-style Monopoly, where you roll the dice and you pay with cash. I That's how I kind of learned how to play, like, do math um, and learn money, was because my parents and cousins always made me be the banker when I was really young, so that I had to learn how to do addition and subtraction and all that on the fly. Uh, so it's really good. I like that. Plus negotiating. I mean, who doesn't love that? Gotta love negotiating. So I think you and I are pretty similar. Yeah, I'm I'm a numbers freak, so I, I was always banker. But <laughs> um, uh, we're gonna Ian and I are gonna play Catan online. It's gonna not end well. There are gonna be some trades where uh, yeah, the podcast is gonna end because Ian and I got in a fight about wheat. Ian got into a trade blockade. Or sheep. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I just put down the trade blockade. I'm like, nope, not helping Rachel today. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, my favorite NHL teams to watch uh, other than the Leafs. So, the Paul Korea Timu Solani Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Oh. That's that's a favorite of mine. I had a Paul Korea jersey back in the day. Um, I loved the Marcus Naslin Vancouver Canucks. What about a current team? Current team, Colorado. Can't get enough of Nathan McKinnon, uh, Kale McCarr and company. I mean, even just like some depth players like Eunice, Eunice Donskoy helping out, Burakovsky. I love that team. And, Kadri. and they don't even have Bowen Byram yet, who's going to be amazing to watch. It's I love what Colorado's been doing over the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay, so I won't say Colorado, but they are uh, very high on my list. Um, Edmonton, and I don't exactly think that that's a surprise. They have Connor McDavid and uh, Leon Dreisaitl. Um, and so I love watching them. Um, I'll stay current. I won't go to teams of the past. Um, I like watching the Canucks as well. I think they're super entertaining. I already said the Avs. Um, who, who else? Hmm. Pittsburgh for me this year has just been one of my favorite teams to Actually, watch. Actually, I was going to say Pittsburgh purely because it's it blows my mind. A, who doesn't love watching Sidney Crosby play? But it just blows my mind that even when he is not healthy or not at his best, they still somehow find a way to be this menacing, crazy team that's impossible to take down. And then I would say team of the future... Um, I'm excited about the Rangers. I think that they've done a lot, and uh, I think they'll be exciting. And then whatever team gets Alexi Lafreniere and Quinton Byfield, um, I'll I'll watch them. But um, for me, those are those are the teams, and they're all well, except Pittsburgh. But Vancouver and Edmonton are a little bit more difficult to watch, just because uh, I have school, so I can't stay up until two and three o'clock in the morning. Um to be watching the games the way that I like to watch them with analysis and rewinding and all of that good nonsense. Quick question before we get out of here. Where do you have Artemi Panarin on your heart ballot? If we were to say that the season ends, uh, we're ending it, there's no more regular season, where would he be on your ballot? Top three. Top three? I think I'd have him top one yep. on my ballot. I would. I, yeah, I was going to say I don't want to be like 
that person that like totally forgets someone else but to me like you look at the support that Panarin has versus like you can't say that Marchand and Pasternak should be both up for the heart because then like realistically how valuable are they to their team because there's two of them this is where I struggle with the dry saddle like, argument because he's not even the best player exactly. on his line you know so on his own team yeah and for me it's Panarin because I don't think the Rangers sniff even 10th place without him. Yeah. He's been remarkable. And I think the close, like the best player next to him is Zabanajad. And like Zabanajad's a really good hockey player, but like let's not pretend that he's Marshawn to Pasternak or Dreisaitl to make. I don't think anyone thinks that. If anything, I think Zabanajad's probably underrated around the league. I don't think people realize how good he is. I, I would agree. Yeah, um, but to me, that's that. Who's your Calder winner? Or maybe we should do a show about. Yeah, this. you know we what? Let's arguments. let's save some of this for later. I was just because just you brought up the Rangers. I was thinking, ooh, the Panarin Hart like candidacy, candidacy is an argument that I love making. Just because I don't think people realize just how dominant he's been this year. But we should get out of here. Yeah, We're an and hour you don't in. need to make the playoffs. Yeah, here's the thing. If 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 the Rangers make the playoffs, oh, he's a top three heart candidate. If they miss the playoffs by one point, oh, none of his season matters. I just these these so heart dumb. debates drive so me dumb. nuts. But let's let let's get out of here before before one of us loses our minds. Yeah, before Ian gets mad. Ugh, I'm mad online. I'm hashtag All right, mad online. We will be back next week with Harmon Dial of the Athletic. And for anyone who doesn't know. Ian, Harmon, and I all kind of see the game similar. We all kind of write similar when I used to write at The Athletic. And we always have these like super interesting con- conversations because we don't always agree on the same things, but we have a similar way of looking at things. So it, it'll just be like a full-out nerd coming together virtually on the podcast next week and i'm super excited i know you're super excited Harmon's awesome um, he's been, but yeah we're gonna have Harmon on he's been writing for the athletic vancouver for the last uh year or so two years maybe uh i got to hang out with him boy genius he, yeah boy genius that was the nickname that he got uh when he was in toronto for the canucks uh toronto game i was i i got to hang out with him at his hotel room for a little bit there i got to hang out. he's such a good guy you're gonna love hearing from him fun fact that game was the goal where was the, was the game where mart marinch and Toe dragged someone, went bar down. It didn't quite go in, and then he scored on his own rebound for the game-winning goal. Martin Marinchin scored a highlight real goal. I, I still can't believe it happened. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. <laughs> All right, we will be back next week with Harmon. So take care, stay healthy, and please, for the love of God, stay inside. Stay safe, everyone. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.